Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's a dark wet Saturday in Belfast and I don't know if you can hear the rain outside but hey that's winter for you and there are three stories on this podcast for you to get you through. Two told at our debut event in the seaside town of Port Rush, and the third at our regular black box event. I don't like warm milk, so I drank half of it and put the bottle in the crate beside the door. But Tessa went up and told the teacher, and she said I had to drink it all. <laughs> My piano teacher tells me he is rubbish, like the McDonald's of composers, but I think it's beautiful and I want to share it with you. She told me she was moving house and he, she had fell down the stairs and broke her ankle. But here's the best bit, she said. I was moving into a bungalow. <laughs> three great stories from three amazing women. And let's start in Port Rush. It was September 30th, our first time there, and we were in the amazing Arcadia Ballroom, a gorgeous venue. The theme was outsiders. The PA system was a little hot, so apologies if the quality isn't as crisp as usual. But here's first-timer Kate Murphy with some living history. I'm from Portrush. At least I've lived in Portrush for the last 50 years. But very often when people say to me, where are you from? I'll say, well, I live in Portrush, but I'm from Antrim. (laughs) Antrim is where I spent the first years of my life. And Antrim is where I went to primary school. And it was a little primary school. It was the same primary school that my parents went to. A two-door primary school, boys on one side, girls on the other. That's what it said above the door. And I was the last one of my family to go to that school because my siblings went to the new school. But I spent my years in the old school, and there's probably not very many people, if anyone in this room, who went to a similar kind of school because it would be condemned today with the big open fire and the toilets outside. I wore a tartan kilt, a white blouse and a navy wool cardigan my mother had knit for me. I had a new red ribbon in my hair, grey socks that prickled my legs, and stiff black laced shoes with leather soles that went click-clack as I walked along the footpath. My mother said they would loosen up, and my father would put a rubber sole on later to make them last. I didn't want a rubber sole because I liked the noise they made. My mother was taking me to school for the first time and I was holding tightly to her with one hand. The other held a leather satchel with a jotter and pencil inside and a fruit pastel wrapped up in tissue paper. I was not to eat it till we got out to play. I'd be waiting for you at dinner time and you'll come home for your dinner, my mother told me. Now remember what I told you, don't go running mad at playtime. You'll only slip in your new shoes and you're not to go to the toilet. (laughs) The toilets are outside and they're only holes over a cesspit. They're dirty and disgusting, so wait till you come home. But what'll I do if I have to go? You'll hold on till you come home. But if I have to go? If you have to go, just mind you don't fall down the hole. (laughs) I immediately wanted to go and was terrified. (laughs) We were at the school door. 
hung back behind my mother's skirt when Miss O'Doherty, the infant teacher, came to meet us. Do you know anyone here, she asked. I shook my head. The room was full of faces, and they were all looking at me. There was a smell of dust and wet coat and children and burnt milk. There was no room for me. All the desks were occupied. Maybe she'd tell me to go home again. She didn't. Come and sit here, she told me. You could sit beside Tessa. She'll be your friend and look after you. Tessa was smaller than me. She moved up on the bench to make room for me, and I could see her legs didn't touch the floor. Mine did. I was a big girl, and how everyone said so. I was nearly six. I looked for my mother, but she had gone. I didn't feel like a big girl anymore. I asked Tessa what age she was. She was nearly six too, but she'd come to school when she was four. I told her I could write my name and draw houses. She, she could do joined up writing. And she had a reading book. I didn't know what a reading book was. I asked her about the toilet. She wrinkled up her nose and said, yuck. There was a big fire on one side of the classroom with a fire guard round it. Outside the fire guard, rows of little bottles of milk were lined up warming. They had cardboard tops and some of those near the fire had popped off and the milk was bubbling out. <laughs> and running down the outside of the bottle where it was turning brown in the heat. Two big girls came to give them out. There was a round bit in the middle of the lid that you pushed with your thumb to make a hole for the straw. Tessa showed me how. But my thumb went in with a splash and spilt milk all over the desk. I wiped it up with the sleeve of my cardigan before the teacher saw it. I don't like warm milk. So I drank half of it and put the bottle in the crate beside the door. But Tessa went up and told the teacher and she said I had to drink it all. Then we go out to play. The boys went running to their side of the playground to play, to play football, and the big girls gathered round me to ask my name and what age I was. I didn't like it, but Tessa said she was my friend and she was looking after me, so that was all right. Tessa's still my friend, and I visited her last week. <laughs> she held my hand, and we ran round the playground until I fell and grazed my knee. It was bleeding and there were bits of gravel on the cut, but I didn't cry even though it hurt. Somewhere I lost my ribbon, but then the teacher was ringing the bell. I think I saw it lying trampled and muddy at the bottom of the playground, but I hadn't time to go and get it even if I wanted to. When I went back to the classroom, I got a box of crayons and a page with a picture of a house and children playing in the garden to colour in. I liked colouring in, but I really needed to go to the toilet. I hadn't even eaten my fruit pastel and I thought it was going to burst. I asked Tessa when it would be dinner time. She said not for ages. My knee hurt and I wanted my mother. I started to cry and then I felt the warm wetness trickle off the bench down the inside of my leg, soak into my socks and make a pull in my new shoes before it spread in a puddle over the floor. Oh, the relief. <laughs> <laughs> but the shame of it, 
but the shame of it, and what would my mother say about my socks and my skirt that she'd pressed yesterday? Maybe nobody would notice. <laughs> Tessa was up at the teacher's desk doing her reading. If I put my picture in the puddle, I could cover it. The puddle was huge. The picture floated. And Tessa's hand was up. Please miss, please miss the new girl peed herself. <laughs> I cried harder. The teacher offered me a dolly mixture, but I didn't want it. There were tears and snot and pee everywhere. And then at last, my mother was at the door and I was going home. Would you look at the state of you, she said. You needed the toilet. Could you not have held on? How did you cut your knee and where's your new ribbon? On the way home, I told her about Tessa and the toilet and the milk and the playground and the colouring in. Didn't I tell you school was great fun, she said. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? I knew she wanted me to say yes, so I did. Thanks so much, Kit. No one forgets their first day at school. I hope you'll be back at the 10 by 9 mic soon. And if, like Kit, you'd like to tell your story but are a little nervous or shy, or even if you're not, then get in touch at the 10 by 9 website and I'll do my best to make it happen for you. We are always looking for new storytellers. Okay, let's get on to our second story, and we return to our music night at the Black Box in September. We had so many good stories that evening. Here's one of them, from another first-timer. It's Naomi Hoffart. They say that if you play music when you're pregnant, it helps the baby's brain development, stimulates neuron connections. I wonder if you ever listened to music when I was in your womb. My earliest memory of music is dancing around our crimson-carpeted living room to Cat Stevens back when he was still Cat Stevens. You and Dad would put the record on, and we would all twirl about. I remember feeling joy, like real proper joy, wiggling my body, shaking my head and hands and legs and feet in such a way that only the innocence of childhood can conjure, you know, before we learn that we might look silly. Life happens, and I grow up. Happy childhood, school, boys, drugs, work, booze, college. Then I get on a plane and fly halfway across the world, fall in love with a different island, put roots down here. You support me, even though you don't understand. Just get a job that pays you well, you say. Granny moves in with you, which you love. She just needs a little support, and you're happy to give it. Every new person Granny meets, she sings a song with their name in it. Maybe it's to help her remember their name. Maybe it's just because she loved to sing. I remember Granny used to tell me that she would just wake up with a song in her head. It was her piano that moves into that awkward room that isn't a living room and isn't a sitting room. Perhaps it's a piano room. You seem happy. You seem like you have purpose. You sit with Granny, doing the crossword puzzle, listening to her fuzzy tapes. Then we notice that Nathan is getting sicker. Nathan loves music. Singing sim seems to bring him peace. At first, we shake our heads and say things like, he just needs to grow up a bit, or he's a creative person and he just gets a bit dramatic sometimes. But as the years go on, the situations become bigger and more intense, more serious. 
He thinks he is smarter than the psychiatrists, and I'm sure some of them he is. So he starts to self-medicate. This breaks your heart. One time, he sends me a video from rehab of him singing a song with some friends. It slices through to the core of me. It's so hauntingly beautiful. I send you the video, and then I instantly regret it, because I know it will bring you joy, but it will also break your heart even more. That summer, you decide to take piano lessons. You've always wanted to, and hey, you have a piano in the house. It's an heirloom, and you might as well get some use out of it. You are on fire that summer. I'm home for most of the season, and I love seeing you at that piano. You learn fast, and you learn well. You ooze joy when you play, your smile betraying any frustration with the notes. You will not be stopped. You plan a big party, and you hire your piano teacher's band. You hate planning things, and you don't much like parties, but this is different. You're sure it will be a massive success because we deserve something to celebrate. I love that summer. You find solace in the music. It gives you life. It makes the shit less shit. The party was a riot. It was absolutely the smashing success you knew it would be. Family and friends dancing in the garden, laughing, singing, drinking, and smoking. And then Granny got sick. And then COVID happened. And then Granny died. She was 96, but it didn't matter to you. I think something in you died with her. You stopped playing the piano. You struggled to paint. You fell out with your sisters because they were being shitheads and everyone was stuck in the depths of grief. You were so angry all the time. Nathan got out of rehab and he was scared. Sometimes people are sick even though you can't see their symptoms. He came out into a world that was in chaos and he felt alone. He was never alone, but he couldn't see that. He tried so hard, we all did. But in the end, his sickness took his life. After we lost Nathan, you went even farther inside yourself. You stopped painting. You stopped listening to music. We all rolled around in grief, reaching out to each other as best we could, but I couldn't reach you. One year went by and then another. You came to visit me here when I graduated. You were so proud. Finally, the job that will pay me money. But you didn't feel great. Your stomach was bugging you. I'll go to the doctor when I get home, you said. I remember my fear. I buried it deep. The sky was gray the day that you called. Cancer. I cried until I felt my lungs would burst. I don't understand. What the absolute fuck? Pancreatic cancer? What a horrific beast, I can tell you. But after your diagnosis, something shifted. You let your fingers gently stroke the keys of the piano again. Dad bought you a Bluetooth speaker and you started to play all sorts of music from it. Everything and anything, as long as it, was, as long as it wasn't mainstream, you loved it. The anger evaporated. God knows why, but it did. Your face, though it withered, grew bright again. You smiled more in those nine months than you had in the previous nine years. Of course, we didn't know that it was nine months. We didn't know anything. 
I start my new big money-paying job, which it doesn't, and meet a music teacher. He comes in and he teaches my patients once a week. One day, I have this idea. I will learn to play the piano for you. It'll be a surprise, and when I next come home, I'll sit at our piano, and my fingers will know what to do, and you will be so proud of me. You'll be so happy because I, too, love this instrument that gives you so much joy. By this point in my life, classical music has become like a drug to me. How, why, I will never know. It feeds me, though. It turns off the terror and allows a peace that lets my jagged nerves rest. I get a piano, fuck are they hard to move, and it sits in my piano room. It is old, it is small, it is untuned, but it is here. My piano teacher is amazing. He feels music in a way that I don't understand, but he teaches me. His piano makes mine sound like drills hitting metal. He has these eyes, I tell you, because by now I've told you that I'm learning. I feel it in my bones that I need to tell you because time is running out and I know that. You were delighted when I told you I could hear your smile through the phone. So his eyes, you say? Maybe an artist is what you need, you tell me, as I push your wheelchair from the hospital doors to the edge of the property so you can smoke. I put piano music on for you as you lay in pain. Ludovico Analdi. My piano teacher tells me he is rubbish, like the McDonald's of composers, but I think it's beautiful and I want to share it with you. You listen, your eyes fluttering with the weight of your discomfort. Play my song, you say. So I put it on. Cold play. We listen, we cry. Play this, you say. Learn this song for me. You tell me that you're happy to see Nathan, to see Granny. I nod, tears falling from my face. The night you die, I fall asleep listening to the piano. My life is forever changed. I can't play the piano. I can't think or feel or love or listen. I am void. Time moves. I cry a lot. I sit and I look at my piano. More time, I cry some more. Then one day, as I walk past the piano, I stop. I place an index finger on middle C. I hear the note ring out, and I think, I need to get this tuned. Many thanks, Naomi. What a beautiful story. And thanks for letting us meet your mum. She sounds wonderful. Ten by nine is always free and always will be, but I'd just like to say a big thank you to everyone who has donated via Patreon over the years. It helps cover our costs and we're truly grateful. Thanks too to everyone at the live events who has donated via Story Pig, our big China piggy bank. It's really appreciated and helps keep us going. Okay, here's our third and final story in this podcast, and let's go back to the Arcadia in Portrush for this inspiring tale. Here's Carrie Ann Spears. When the call for stories on the theme of outsiders came, I didn't think, do I have a story to tell? Rather, which one can I tell? Because all of my life, I have been a listening ear for all sorts of people. 
Total strangers have approached me and told me their whole life story. Once a woman sat down beside me on the train and told me about her complicated relationship with her mother from birth to present day in the time it took to travel from Kalibaki to Balamani. <laughs> Another time, a woman approached me to explain she had broken her ankle. I asked if she wanted me to ring an ambulance or a taxi or if there was somebody she wanted me to contact. She said, oh no, this was a month ago. <laughs> I'm fine now, she said, but you'll never guess how I broke it. She was right, I couldn't guess. She told me she was moving house and he, she had fell down the stairs and broke her ankle. But here's the best bit, she said. I was moving into a bungalow. <laughs> it happens so often to me that friends say, I met one of your lot today. And by my lot, they mean someone who's a bit different, maybe a bit nostalgic for something, or maybe they're just going through something a bit difficult. Just an all-round outsider. I'm not sure what it is about me that inspires people to take me into their confidence, but it happens so often that my friends do not blink an eye when I tell them I'm running late because a man has stopped me in the street to talk to me about their blind father who died some years before. For these reasons, I tend to keep my head down. <laughs> I try reading a book or scribbling in my notebook, which was what I was doing some years ago, when I noticed an older gentleman sitting beside me on the train. He was peering over my notes. He had a great thicket of white hair, chained with a great deal of wax, and he, <laughs> into, um, yeah, and he wore a, a dark suit, very neatly contrasted with a lovely white crisp shirt. His face was contoured by furrowed lines, particularly around the eyes, which I think is always a sign of a life well lived. He seemed very frail. He was a little too skinny, a little too gaunt, a little too worn around the edges. And he was staring out the window. But he kept peering over at my notebook. So I leaned away from him. You aren't going to the science conference in Dublin by any chance. I shook my head. Oh, he went back to staring out the window. Unusually mild summer we're having, he said after some time. Yes. I looked up from my notebook, and when he smiled, somehow it showed every single wrinkle that had formed on his face, every single crease that had comfortably moulded around his eyes. They say we're in for a bad winter, but that's a lot of nonsense. You only have to study the weather patterns from the 1800s onwards, <laughs> and you will see we are in for a mild winter this year. It's all there, you know, if you know where to look for it. And I nodded as though everyone should be studying the weather patterns for the least 200 years. And then I popped my head down to write some more, but he leaned over again. So I closed my book. What are you writing? He was determined to start a conversation. I'll give him that. A short story. And at that time, a short story was my code for a novel that probably will be half finished. I had a dozen short stories lying around the house. What's it about, he beamed. Not much of anything at the moment. I'm just taking notes, I lied. Um, it was probably chapter three or four of a story that was abandoned shortly after the conversation. 
Despite the two lies I had told him, it was surprisingly open for me because he knew I was writing a story, which was more than I had shared with anyone else. Do you write for a living? No, I'm in IT. I said, knowing the board response at that job <laughs> always garters. Have you been published? No, I just write for myself. Oh, I've been published, he smiled. A textbook, though, not fiction. I'm a physicist. I'm going to Dublin today to give a talk. I'm retired, but it's good to keep your hand in these things. And I agreed, like I understood the world of retired physicists. <laughs> he was silent for some time again, looking out the window. Then he said, If you like to write, and you think you're good enough, you should try to get published. And at that stage, I didn't like talking about my writing, and that's why if it came up, I said, I write short stories. If I said I wrote novels, people would expect me to be published, or if at least finished writing a book. Or, worst of all, they would want me to tell them what I was writing about. Really, at that stage, I was just a curator of discarded half-books and post-its with semi-formulated ideas. Can I tell you a story, he said. And like all people who start a sentence with, can I tell you a story, he launched straight into it without waiting for the answer. <laughs> when I was a young man, I played the piano. I was good enough to be a concert pianist. I really was. My teacher told me to play professionally, but I needed to practice more often. And at that time, I started to become interested in physics. I had the mind to do both, but my teachers told me I needed to focus on one. So I chose physics. Since, since then, I've regretted choosing physics over the piano. I told him I was sorry to hear that. I thought physics was a safe option. A concert pianist might struggle for many years on next to nothing and maybe never get anywhere in life. That's what I thought when I was a young man. But since I've retired, I've taken up the piano again. I'm nowhere as good as I was. His smile was dimming. Well, I said, if you chose the piano over physics, perhaps you'd be reading physics books in your spare time instead. He grinned and nodded. Yes, I suppose he would. We talked a little more of his life. He was nearly 90 and had never married, but he came very close twice, he assured me. <laughs> in general, he was happy with his life. He was an expert in his field, highly re revered. He traveled a little for his work, mostly to give talks, but that nagging feeling that he should have been a pianist stayed with him. And of all the people who have opened up to me over the years, I think about him the most. I think about the advice he was trying to impart, trying to let me know that I might regret not giving my writing a chance. And that choosing a sensible career over a creative right life <laughs> might seem like the best choice, but I could find myself on a train at 90 telling somebody else to follow their dream. I took his advice to heart, as they say, and I started to tell people that I write more than short stories. I joined a writing class where I actually met a lot of the lovely people in here tonight. And I started to share my words with other people started to enter competitions, and even my reading here today is because of that little conversation on the train. And although, if I was to meet him again, I wouldn't listen to his weather predictions. In spite of what he said, we were in for the worst 
winter since Rikers began. So. Marianne, thanks so much. Your second 10 by 9 story. I look forward to reading your novel soon. And that is it for this podcast. Check out all the 10 by 9 upcoming dates on our website, which includes some special events over the coming months. And keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It'd be really helpful if you'd give the podcast a review or rating at Apple Podcasts. It helps get us noticed. And tell as many people as you can about 10 by 9 and the 10 by 9 podcast. Thanks to everyone who makes 10 by 9 happen. The fabulous Leanne McConville, Margaret McClory, and Chris O'Donoghue who have been my support over the past year. Thanks, of course, to the beautiful people of The Black Box, the best venue in Belfast, and to the people at Arcadia, the most gorgeous venue on the Antrim coast. Thanks to all our fantastic audiences, and to all our amazing storytellers, of course, but especially Kate Murphy, Naomi Hoffart, and Carrie ann Spears. I'm Paul Dorn, and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.